The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your host, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Cindy Chupek. She has won three Golden Globes. She has an Emmy for her work as writer, executive producer of HBO's Sex and the City. Her credits also include Modern Family, Everybody Loves Raymond, and Coach, amongst many others. And Cindy now has written, it's not her first book, but this is her latest book, her memoir, The Longest Date, Life as a Wife. Life as a Wife, I like that. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Cindy. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, so you've been writing about everybody else's lives, I guess. You're very funny. All, I mean, I, I have to say, that, you know, Sex in the City, Modern Family, Everybody Loves Raymond Coach, all of my favorite shows. So now you decided why you're going to write about you and your life, your life as a wife. Um, what prompted you to do that? Well, actually, all along I've written comic essays about dating and relationships. It's something I sort of did on the side. And because you could write in the first person, it's a nice antidote to television where you're writing for all these other characters, um, partly just because there's fewer chefs. I mean, television and film, there's so many people telling you, which, and I love it. It's been a great career, but, you know, there's just many more people involved. So there's something very nice and satisfying about writing in the first person about your own life and your own voice. Um, but is it so scary? I, it's like you're writing, this is you, because now you're exposing yourself. I mean, it would seem to me when you're writing these comedies, which are fantastic, you obviously, I mean, you take from who you are, right? That comes right. out in your writing, but you can kind of go with it and, and do what you want. But that now when it's all about you, um, is it scary to, like, get all that personal stuff out there? And, and then let's talk about what you actually did write about or do write about. Yeah, a little bit. And more in this book, my first book was Between Boyfriends book, a, cautious, a collection of cautiously hopeful essays, and it was all about dating. And there's something, uh, more people do it, write about dating, and it felt a little bit, let's just say those guys felt a little more disposable because they often were disposed of or they disposed of me. <laughs> so there was something more complicated about figuring out how to write about my marriage and our baby quest, which we talk about in uh Honestly, and in the same tone that I wrote about dating, but um, I, you know, I really wanted to try to do it because I felt like it was something that women don't talk about as much. And that when I got married, I, it was felt like such a, a lonelier endeavor a little bit because there, your entire support group of women that you talked about everything with when you were dating suddenly kind of closed ranks, and it's your, you know, these are your problems. You made your bed, now lie in it. <laughs> yeah, you know that's true, and uh, you know because now it gets more intimate, and the and this is you're talking about your supposedly lifelong partner, because I think I had read somewhere, that, and, and someone had asked you that question, I guess, um, that, you know, 
girlfriends. You know, you talk about the guys you you dated, you slept with. I mean, girlfriends are always calling up and, you know, discussing all those details. And then suddenly you get married. I think this is a really important point, like what you're saying. You've got this husband or partner and now you can't talk about it anymore because this is the guy you're always with. This is the guy you go out with with your girlfriends. And so it is a lonely situation. It it. It, yeah, it, it, I mean, yeah. it, I was so happy to finally find him, and I'm. So you have all these disclaimers, like I, I just as what I feel like saying to you is what I think happens to women. You feel like I don't want to be ungrateful. I know I'm lucky to be married. He's really a great guy. I don't want to divorce him. This probably isn't a big problem. It's, it's nothing that other people don't deal with. Or what if it is something? that is alarming to people and I mention it, will they forever think, why are you married to this guy or tell me that I should leave him? There's so many reasons not to talk about your marriage that, um, well, people start judging you. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, they're judging you then, and you feel judged, exactly. And you might, uh, you know, you don't really want advice about how you should leave him or you shouldn't have made the decision to marry him. That's not really what you're asking for, right? Um, right. And you also, I think, sometimes feel disloyal, like this is your mm-hmm. husband. You, you shouldn't be talking about him to other people. There's certainly a culture of, you know, joking around about man colds. And, you know, there's a there's a... There's a there's a first level of talking about your marriage, which is kind of the laughing about your marriage along with everybody else. But I felt like there wasn't anything that was all that honest and um, it, it, nothing that was really speaking to me anyway about, wow, I really wasn't prepared for not just what he, how it was to be married to him, but for me to be married because I really found so many of the challenges I was facing were my own obstacles to intimacy probably of just really letting someone into my life and adjusting to, even though I was so happy to have met him, wow, there's this person in my space all the time. <laughs> He's here again today. I mean, there was just an everydayness that um, took some getting used to and still does. And, you know, the, the, the decisions, the smallest decisions and the biggest decisions to get a dog or uh, whether he should have a man cave and did that mean he needed to escape from me and was that, a sad state of affairs that he already needed to escape from me. I just I had so many feelings, the same kind of the same kind of sort of comic dilemmas I had dating and just wasn't sure how to talk about them and so I took it as a challenge to try to talk about them. And you did, and you have. But let's uh, can we backtrack a little because you you were married. Let's talk about your. Should we start from the beginning, like your first husband, because you were married once. You were married before, um, and. Uh, how you met him and then your second husband and kind of follow that timeline? Yes. Um, When I was in my early 20s in New York, I met someone who seemed perfect for me, and my parents were so excited. um, I mean, I'm Jewish. He was Jewish. He was very smart. He was working on Wall Street at the time. Um, Perfect. We had a short courtship. We married. (laughs) Uh, He had this great big family. It was just that we had a huge wedding in Philadelphia, and a couple of years later, he realized he might might be gay. I'm going to say might be gay because he hadn't been with a man, but thought he needed to figure that out. And that now, was did he right tell before. you this? Let's be, uh, you know, because this happens a lot, and I think, or maybe it's not happening any more than it used to, but people are beginning to talk about it, and, and you know, so met, oftentimes people do get married and then realize Hey, I'm gay, and so let's talk about that. Did you have any? Did you ever suspect that, or were you, you know? I did. I felt like, in retrospect, there were signs. In fact, my very 
my first impression was he might be gay because he just, he, <laughs> what I say jokingly, but it's true, is I could talk to him about anything. You know, I have so many great gay friends. Friends, yeah. And it was very comfortable being with him. He was so funny. He made Wall Street and everything that happened there seem hilarious and accessible as opposed to the way some men talk about money. You know, it was stories about people. And um, he had this leather jacket that, that had sort of a tiger print lining inside. I remember the tiger print lining just stuck in my head a little bit. Like, <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, he, I guess, he, he I, so I had this fear. I, ha- I actually have a, t- a story. I don't mean to refer or duck out of this, but it's pretty long <laughs> of course, it was a whole mini-drama, so I ended up telling a moth story, which is available at my website at cindyshupak.com, and it's all about when he told me and going to my 10-year reunion with him and not telling anyone and how we finally kind of got through it. But it was quite, despite the circumstances, I think I felt like anyone who divorces at a young age or at any age, just like a failure, like my life was over, like everything that I thought was going to be my future was done and I embarrassed to tell everyone who had come to my wedding and uh, unsure where my life was going. But it turned out to be, of course, a pivotal moment for my career because I was single for such a long time after that. And that became the basis of my writing and probably why I was on Sex and the City, why I had a column. And so in retrospect, and he now um, is married and he did get he did find a husband and have kids before I did, which was a little annoying to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you do. but now I wish, but I, you know, of course wish him well. I'm still friends. I, it really just felt like we were both young and didn't know who we were, you know, maybe to a greater extent than some people do. But I think a lot of people marry young and then grow apart for various reasons. And so that's what happened. And, and in writing this book, I kind of wished it was a cleaner, I'm finally getting married at 40, but I do have this baggage and I did admit it. And I think a lot of people do. And, um, and it was important to feel like I got married young and had no idea, didn't overanalyze at all. And then over the years and maybe working for Sex in the City, I got to where I really analyzed everybody to the point of being so comfortable ending a relationship that didn't feel like the right relationship that um, by the time I found Ian, uh, it was just surprising to me still that I had so much to learn. Well, you learned a lot. I mean, I think that when you met Ian, and I think one of the things that you talk about or, or, the, is that, or that's in the book is, you know, how you negotiate everything. I mean, the negotiation of what marriage involves, negotiating over cooking, sex, holidays, monogamy, and you mentioned struggles with fertility. That's what marriage is all about. And of course, I mean, you're able to do this and write about it so that in your memoir, it's kind of, it's funny, but at the same time, it's very moving. So how do you negotiate all that stuff? Because we want to hear it from you. You're the expert. Well, you're the social worker. (laughs) I'm the social worker, but I was married for 20 years, divorced, uh, and have now been, and all my listeners know this because I say it ad nauseum, but I've been with my partner, boyfriend, for over 25 years. So I didn't get married the second time. I I have a monogamous monogamous relationship with him, but I'll never get married again. So I'm, that's why I'm real interested in your story. I mean, I have three boys, three grown kids. So, but um, and I'm happy. It's a little bit different when you're not with that person all the time. Mm-hmm. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, there were certain models of, uh, you know, non-marriage that look appealing, and I had friends who, and I've had friends, you know, I don't feel like everyone needs to get married, for, certainly. Um, but I think even any relationship, and certainly in a long-term relationship, you're facing these exact same things, whether you call it marriage or not, um, of just merging your life with someone. So for me, marriage just sort of took out the escape clause. Even though you can still divorce, clearly, there was something about it, and especially Ian, when I first met him and I write about it in the book, was quite a bad boy, still is pretty much a bad boy, you know, had tattoos, rode a motorcycle, didn't want to marry, didn't believe in monogamy, said he would break my heart, uh, drank too much, just had all the signs of someone you should avoid completely. (laughs) And, And then slowly proved himself, I think, to himself and to me to be such a romantic and such a good guy and such a good partner. Um, so it meant something to me that he wanted to marry me because he certainly had had plenty of other girlfriends and um, there was something romantic about the idea that he had chosen me. So I, let's say that's why I was happy to marry Ian. And then as far as the negotiations, I am finding, uh, yeah, it's just difficult, especially if you're an accomplished woman who's used to doing what you need to do to make your life work and making decisions on your own and traveling on your own and buying cars and, you know, your home on your own, to suddenly have to consult with someone about all these things is very Yeah, so Cindy, so how do, you, how do you do that? That's, that's really it. That's the crux of the matter. Here you are. You're successful. You make choices that have consequences, all of those things, and you're not consulting with, with him about it. So how do you do it and make it work? Um, we're still learning. I mean, there's times where he'll say, like right now, he's in Aspen on a conference. It's a very busy time for me professionally. <laughs> um, you know, he just, he's going, he needs to go. It's not so much a negotiation. It's, uh, and I don't know if this is good or bad, but I think sometimes both people being clear on what you really need to do and want to do, um, is sort of an easier place to work from than, probably a more polite, I would, you know, it would probably, (laughs) I don't know if I recommend this, it would be nice if he would come to me and say, there's this conference I really want to go to, but I know it's a busy time for you, do you think you could do it? I would probably say, no, I don't think you should go right now, this is, uh, I, you know, it would be a longer discussion, a longer negotiation, maybe a nicer negotiation, but if he just comes to me and says, I'm, I really want to do this, I'm doing it, you know, it's important for my career, uh, we'll just get extra help at home and, <laughs> you know, then you just go, okay. It sort of reminds me of, I worked with a TV writer. In TV, there's a, there's very little room for your personal life if you're on a writer, writing staff. And before I had kids, before I was even married, I remember I was on a show where we were working a lot of hours and there was one father who would just say, my son's in a play, I'm going to be late tomorrow. He wouldn't say, can I take off because my son's going to be in a play. He just said it. It was important to him. He was a father. He was doing this. And there wasn't a lot of negotiation, and um, and he had his priorities straight. And I remember just filing that away as that's such a strong position to come from. I don't think women do that very often in, in work. We, we don't want to seem like we're prioritizing our kids or our marriage. But I think sometimes in a negotiation, it's good to just come with, here's what I need. How can we make this work? As opposed so, do you do that? And you do that in business. Let's say you do that in your job or in your profession, and then you also do it. You're saying you and Ian do that too. I mean, this is what I have to do, and I need 
it's sort of like, and I need you to support me. And then you figure out how you're going to do it. Is that yeah, and like in my book, I talk about things that seem less important to me, like the man cave. I did have a lot of struggle about what that meant. Was he escaping from me? And he said, yes, of course, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> and coming around to realizing, um, you, you know, that's normal. I, he kind of pointed out to me, and it's a funny chapter in the book, that I use reality TV, or was at the time, in the same way, and that some men use sports, some men go to strip clubs. You know, there's yeah. different sorts of escapes, and in a marriage, you need to allow your spouse that room. Um, so sometimes it's—it uh, was a matter to... of understanding what was behind the request, and then getting my head around. I have that same need sometimes, and so, you know, just understanding and trying to make room for these things that seem daunting. And well, uh, I have a question: Why do you think mm-hmm. we have the expectation that just because you got married? that you would never, ever want any separate time, even within the confines of your own house, from each other. I mean, where does that, it, isn't that kind of like an unrealistic expectation that we set up for ourselves? I mean, here you are, very two independent people, two different uh-huh. professions. You've been on your own, um, and now you get married and you're expected to be wanting to be in the same room all the time, every, anytime you're home, 24. It sounds horrific to me, actually. I mean, it is, you know, so what's so funny is it sounds horrific to me, too, and yet it's still... It still felt like I wanted him to want to be with me, <laughs> but, I didn't, but I really didn't mind. As soon as we implemented this man cave, it, 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 not only did he have somewhere to go, I had my entire house back. <laughs> so it's not like we spend all our time apart, but yeah, there, I think there's certain things you fight against in a marriage because it just sounds like not what you thought your idea was going to be. I mean, this was pretty early, and I felt like we're still newlyweds. Why does he already need to get away from me? But truly, I needed to get away from him, too. And so, let it, yeah, letting go of those stigmas of what you thought it was supposed to be or what you thought a, a marriage was going to look like is important because uh, deep down, you probably have the same needs as your spouse, and, you know, if they're reasonable, there's no reason not to negotiate or allow someone to have what they need. So maybe it's just owning up to what you really, really sitting down and owning up to what you really feel, not what some outside expectation is of because you just got married or because you decided to be in a monogamous relationship. But you have to kind of, you define it yourself. Like you really have to understand where you're coming from and then go from there and make the choices. But okay, monogamy, let's you know that. And I think you mentioned this, uh, that, here you are, you're expected to be monogamous, to sleep with this one man for the next 40 years. Uh, how does that, how do you it's, feel about that? It definitely scared me. Yeah. I mean, I find, I find Ian very sexy and cool, so it, wasn't, it didn't seem like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to sleep with him for the rest of my life. It seemed like a good choice for the one person. <laughs> He's my, as my desert island guy, he seemed like a good guy, but, yeah, the desert island scared me. I, I definitely had my share of boyfriends. He had his share. It seemed uh, like a daunting thing to think about forever, not just for him, but for me. But um, but then there's so many other things involved in your partnership and in life that uh, that bring you closer. And you're so tired <laughs> that the thought, at least for right now, for me, um, the thought of like also having to date <laughs> It's exhausting. Where where would I find time for that? And I would have to, I'd have to look at, I'd have to be wearing lingerie again. Now I can just be in my sushi pajamas, and we, 
know, it's not as sexy as the version, but yeah, there's something about that comfortable. You can still, you're still having sex with this person, but you're so comfortable. You really love them. They've seen you at your best and worst. They're coping with all the things you're coping with as far as a child or just job stress or your ideally biggest fan in your career and support. And, um, and then you're in the same bed with that person. It's it's very intimate. It's beyond, way beyond sex. And then the sex is kind of the icing on the cake for that. So uh, just a random person. I can see where a flight gets boring and when someone thinks, you know, still when someone flirts with me, it kind of takes me by surprise and I think it's fun. And we'll still report to each other, like, oh, mm-hmm. someone hit on me in the bakery today. <laughs> That's great, honey. <laughs> are, you, are you talking to me? Is this what you're <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very surprising to me because I feel so immersed in my other life right now that when someone flirts with me, I think it's surprising and, and nice. And I will report it to Ian, and he'll report it to me. We kind of brag about it. So it's nice. It's like, oh, that's great. That's, that's cool. Now, I don't know, though. Years and years later, I mean... I'll be interested to see. He certainly, when he laid out, he wasn't sure about monogamy. Uh, he laid out a lot of lies in the sand, I mean, lines in the sand that I think were important for him to state and that someone probably would have advised me to pay attention to. And I did. I took him very seriously. And uh, But then it felt like he, he, they went away as we got married and as I respected them, you know. I never said, okay, you don't have to be monogamous. But when we were just meeting, I said, okay, well, that's not what I'm looking for, so I'm going to keep looking and... I guess that scared him into monogamy. <laughs> he was terrified. Uh, what about, okay, we're covering all the hot topics, obviously, monogamy. Now, struggles with fertility, because that's a big one and for any couple. So tell us about that, because you obviously overcame that. You have a daughter. Um, what was, you know, how was that for you? What was the process and when you talk about struggling with fertility? What happened? Um. Have you talked about this on your show before? It's such a topic for every woman I know. Fertility, now. yes. Uh-huh. Um, I, so this is one of those places where I felt like there's there's a, there's so many things going on. <laughs> First of all, we did marry late. I was forty by the time we got around to the ceremony. I mean, we had a quick courtship and got married, and it was one of our first items, and it's probably the reason Ian married me, because as a bad boy, he doesn't have a whole lot of incentive to settle down, but he did want to have a kid, and uh, we thought, I wished we had five years just to be a couple, but knew we were going to have to start trying to have a child right away, because I was older, and of course, we ran into all the problems that you run into, because biologically, I was way past my prime, so um, we just kind of went through the ringer of every issue you could you could face, and we tried we moved from plan A to plan B to plan C to plan D, which um, we always had adoption in our back pocket as something we were open to. And I think it's important to know when you have friends going through fertility struggles, having an option is different than being ready to move on to that option. There's just a process you have to go through, and it doesn't mean you're not so happy. Now, of course, I would not rather have any child but Olivia, and I'm so happy we landed at adoption and she feels She's, you know, as much my baby as any baby could be. So, How old was Olivia when you adopted her? We adopted her at birth. It was a domestic adoption, so we were in the delivery room. And uh, it, I was, I never imagined being, you know, watching the birth of my baby like men do. But it was still quite a miracle. It feels like 
the most gigantic gift. I mean, I have such a respect for birth mothers who do this because no matter their circumstances to, you know, have a baby and give it to a couple who needs a baby, it, there's no greater gift, not to sound corny, but being in the delivery room just really made me realize that. Like, this is n- the biggest thing I can imagine anyone doing, and we'd been trying for so long, and we were so appreciative, and it was still a sacrifice, no matter if it made more sense for her um, circumstances or not. It's still quite a thing to give a couple of babies, so I could not be more grateful, and it was very, uh, for us, we looked into a lot of different kinds of adoption, and that aspect of a domestic adoption and being able to be there from birth was something we liked the idea of for us since we'd struggled for so long. Um, I'm so cautious when talking about any of this to know that other people adopt abroad and have just as close a relationship with their child who was two or three or adopt foster children. And there's so many different ways to become a parent and there's no loss of those years or that history or, you know, some people don't know who the parents were, who the mom was, if you adopt from a foreign country. Um, There's so many different ways to do it. All of them can be wonderful. This was just our our personal thing. And that's something about the fertility struggle is that it's such a personal struggle that you have to make these decisions you never imagined making, like what your tolerance is for uh, knowing the birth parents or not or another country or could there have been circumstances, do you know how healthy the mother was when she was, you know, the race, the ethnicity. There's so many decisions you make that, you have to confront your own um, just tolerance and you really have to be honest with yourself. That's another place where you have to just forget what you think you're going to project to people, if people will agree or disagree, even your own family with your decision. Uh, People will say, are you going to have contact with the birth parents and be so judgmental and I would hate that and that must be, and I felt like if we get an occasional text from the birth mother, she gave us a baby. I just feel like, (laughs) of course, we can have contact. I I welcome that. So uh, there's so many things that people will slip judgment about during the process. So that's one yep. challenge. Yep. Just and and probably just that out of ignorance or just, you know, not knowing. And as, I think what you just said, though, is important. As long as you're clear about how you feel and what your attitudes are and the two of you, then, you, then you're okay with it. It's your family. It's how you decide to create your own family. And as, as you're describing the birth, it's, that's really a family affair. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, which to me sounds very exciting. But, um, yeah, I mean, you have to... It, it, Probably put you yeah, in. the main thing is if you're doing it with someone, and I know women who have done it as single women also, but if you're, either way, if you're doing it with someone, that is a negotiation that um, you have to just be very sensitive about. That one you can't say, here's what I need. I mean, it's two people, you and, you and your partner, and you have to make sure you're on the same page, and you kind of have to slow down for whoever needs the time. I mean, there were plenty of times where I just said, I need six months where we're not thinking about this or talking about this or just to get over what we just went through before we start again. And um, Ian was very good about that, even though I know it was hard for him to just keep waiting. Uh, He was good about giving me the time because that was sort of a non-negotiable. I just needed some time to regroup, even though it felt like time was something we didn't have. And um, I did realize there was a lot of, there's a lot of mourning the loss of, uh, 
if not a baby, sometimes just a plan or what you thought your future was going to be every step of the way when things are, when disappointments happen or a plan falls through. So that process of trying is just so trying. It's something to be aware of with, if you have family going through it or friends, and it's certainly something to be aware of if you're going through it, um, to just allow yourself that morning. And in the book, I'm very proud that I included an essay that Ian wrote about a miscarriage we had after we told all our friends we were pregnant. And he wrote about it from the male point of view. And that's something that really doesn't get talked about or dealt with emotionally is how men are dealing with these losses. Yeah, I think that's very true. Uh, you know, we have to stop here because the next guest is here. But as, I think as you just pointed out, I mean, this whole topic of, of fertility uh, is one we could have done for an hour. But um, yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely, yeah. And so, but the longest date, Life as a Wife, I want to make sure that everybody has obviously the name of the book. And you mentioned, Cindy, it's cindychupac.com if, uh, for more information, obviously, about the book, about you. Um, is that the website yes, or the only website? That- yeah, it's uh, C-I-N-D-Y-C-H-U-P-A-C-K dot com, and there's links to pieces about the book and some essays and um, that moth story and also where you can buy the book and the audio book. Terrific. Thank you well, so much after for talking having... to you, uh, yes, now I understand why you're such a successful writer and producer. And I think, oh, one other thing before we go, because isn't this, isn't your book um, uh, going to be a pilot for a Fox TV show? Yes, so now that I've written the raw material, the truth, I'm adapting it, and Jake Kasdan will be directing and producing. He he created New Girl with Liz Merriweather, so he's creating this show with me, and um, now I can use all the best stories from the book and embellish and tell some that were uh, too hard to be truthful about because there will be fictional characters and you won't know for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic, great. Thanks, Cindy, so much for being on the show. Okay, thank you so much for having me. All right. It was a real pleasure. We are going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your host on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I'm your social worker with the microphone. Uh, When we come back, we'll be talking to Carolyn Conger. Her new book is Through the Dark uh, Forest, Transforming Your Life in the Face of Death. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're a part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. 
Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Carolyn Conger. Her new book is Through the Dark Forest, Transforming Your Life in the Face of Death. Carolyn is a Ph.D. She has a doctorate in clinical psychology. She's a consultant, a teacher who conducts seminars internationally as well as nationally in psychological growth, healing, dream work, Intuition, Creativity, and Spirituality. Uh, her book, uh, Through the Dark Forest, tackles the most difficult questions that arise uh, when people are facing death, not only individuals, but individuals and their families. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Carolyn. Thanks a lot, Catherine. I really appreciate being here. Well, I know you've done this for 30, well, you corrected me. I said 30 years, but before the show, you <laughs> 35 years dealing with death, which in our society I think is still somewhat a taboo topic, um, even given the, the series, the, quote, dark comedy series, Six Feet Under. Uh, but still, people don't like to talk about death. And so you've been doing this for 35 years, helping people to face death, not just death, I guess, but also maybe the death of their body, debilitating illnesses. Um, so how do you, first of all, how do you talk about it or how do you get people to talk about it? How do you help them to face death and their families? And how did you get into this work in the first place? I know you're a psychologist, but okay, that's three questions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I started out and it seemed like everyone who came to me in the beginning when I started out had illness. And I thought, how interesting. And I had had a great deal of illness myself as a young person. So I knew how to work with them. I knew what their fears were. I knew some of the questions that they were afraid to ask their doctors and some of the things they were worried about. So I guess the word spread, and I've worked with a lot of people with illness and life-threatening suffering of, of any kind. And what I realized was that in our society, as you said, death is you know, under the covers. We don't like to talk about it. It's not taught about in the schools. It's not seen as a natural cycle of life. And this is very different than other cultures. So when I noticed this, I began to really investigate how do other cultural cultures deal with death. And what they do is usually they have a sense of everything in nature having uh, cycles, living and dying, and all of the, the states in between. And they also have beliefs in the afterlife that are very solid, a connection to the ancestors on the other side. So I took some of this material and, with the people individually, worked with their beliefs. 
I didn't put my beliefs on them. I said, what, what do you believe about the other side? What do you believe about uh, the meaning of your life that, that you've had? And as we worked further, we discovered many areas in their lives that were incomplete. One area was forgiveness. Uh, many people have Can we just issues. backtrack a little bit? Because, you know, you're talking about other cultures and, and afterlife and... Um, the, and you, you take people from where they're coming from. I guess I really right. want to go, what, I want to get real specific. I mean, you said you okay. suffered from debilitating illness, so you were, and people came to you. Well, what was your illness? And, number, and also then, how did they come to you? As in, in therapy, or what was the context of people approaching I, I see you? I what they you're asking. Ask, yeah. Well, being a social worker, you would know how to ask those questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> my illness was encephalomyelitis. I had it when I was 18, and I was paralyzed for several years. I was in an iron lung, uh, and uh, I had to teach myself how to deal with that. I also, once that I was able to move a bit, uh, because I didn't have physical therapy and medicine at that time wasn't that developed to have resources psychologically or physically to help me um, begin to see if I could move my muscles, etc., I began to develop some techniques to work with myself. And I used imagery, and I can talk about that in a little minute. And also I exercised, and I really worked with my inner being. And by that I mean I paid attention to my dreams. I uh, thought about some of the things that had meaning for in my life and how I could, could, could contribute if I could never get out of the wheelchair, etc. So I did a full comprehensive um, workup on myself and, and healing. And I'm not saying I did it all alone. I had good doctors, etc. But there is a huge area of personal inner work that we can do with ourselves that sometimes uh, heals the illness and helps it, certainly, and above all makes the person more comfortable with whatever is to come, whether it be a healing or whether it be death. Okay. So I, uh, we're making the assumption that you healed, and part of it was healing yeah. yourself with obviously yes. the help of, yeah. So, okay, and then was it at that point that you got your degree, or you uh, I got decided? it after I got it afterwards and um, started out working in, actually in probation uh, for my internship, and then um, I began to see people in, you know, as an individual therapist, and out of that, again, the people who came to me who said, will you work with me, just happened to be ill. It was very strange. It was as if I had a neon sign over my office door saying, if you are ill, come on in. <laughs> and after that happened, then I got really interested, and I had friends who were physicians, and they began to refer people to me, and the word got around. It was really word of mouth. And... It's not the only thing that I do. I also do, as you mentioned, workshops on creativity, and I just got back from Chicago doing one essentially on dream work. Uh, so my interests are wide, and I use all of the tools that I have in working with people with, who are suffering with illness. Carolyn, give us an example then. Okay, these are the now, now that we understand where you where you have where you're coming from, but um, people come to you with your neon sign. You're the 
I'm picturing it like you're the death counselor, and uh, but <laughs> well, they don't come. Say they don't come necessarily, even knowing that they're dying. Sometimes they come with terminal illness, but terminal today doesn't mean you're going to die right away. Uh, I have a, a a woman I worked with for four years who was terminal for four years, and for about three and a half of those years, she was playing tennis and dancing. Modern medicine really helps people maintain. Uh, some of them, a long time, uh, life for a long time. Yeah, I and mean, then, they talk about cancer as a chronic illness now, and I yes. actually have a friend who's in a similar situation as you're describing. I mean, she has a port that she wears, and she constantly is, uh, you know, gets chemotherapy, but it's been years, and um, it's living with this, living with cancer, with a terminal illness diagnosis of cancer. So, yes. um yeah, well, and, 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 all, all ter- terminal illness just means there's no known cure. Yeah, well, all of us are terminal. I mean, we're not. You bet. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it just depends on when, right? So mm-hmm. well, let's talk about okay. So what are some of the considerations that people do have to face when they are confronted with, say, end of life or the ones that we're describing? You know, you're diagnosed with a, with cancer, and they tell you it's a terminal illness. Um, and then this is the person you see. What, uh, how do you start from there? Okay. Well, they start out with, first of all, usually why me? And sometimes they're in a victim state. Not always, but sometimes. And we work through that. And their concerns are these. Number one is always, how do I get through the pain and suffering that's coming or that I'm already starting to have? And then they talk about, uh, when we finally talk about death, we talk about their beliefs of uh, about death and how they want to die. That's a really important exploration. You know, do I want to uh, die with music and my friends around, or do I want to have it be very private? Uh, what do I want to leave? What kind of a legacy? Do I want to write some things? Uh, in the book, I talk about how to write an ethical will, which is not a legal will, but it tells about what you want people to remember you for and and what you've learned in life, etc. Some other things that they are concerned about is uh, are I need to forgive someone or will someone forgive me? That's a big one, too. It's a big issue to clean up their lives, so to speak. Uh, They want to know if there's anything more to learn at the end of life. Is this it? Do I just wait three or four years and then go downhill? Or is this a special time? And I believe it's a very sacred, special time when we're alert and aware and every moment becomes precious, and therefore we're open to learning up until the last minute. I've had people have insights literally minutes before they die that seem meaningful to them. They want to know, who am I? Because when you have a diagnosis of a severe illness, everything changes. Sometimes people treat you differently. They whisper about it or they're afraid of cancer themselves and they don't know how to talk or be with you. Uh, They feel, the men especially, feel like their life is over because they're used to being in control and powerful. They don't want to surrender. They don't want to, to be taken care of. They don't want to be dependent. So they say, how can I heal my broken relationships? You know, how can I heal that person that uh, I've been thinking about for many years who I'm still angry about? And uh, Are there techniques for getting through all of this? 
They want to know, is there anything at all redemptive about this time period? And as I have a I question. Said, Carolyn, when you're going through this process, uh, you know, with your, your clients or your patients, what if someone dies before you expected them to die? And you're, you're sort of, I don't know, like what kind of a treat, maybe this is just a social work question, but you know, you talk about a, a treatment plan, like how does it affect you as a, as a therapist? Like, let's say you didn't expect this person perhaps to, to die when he or she did. I mean, does that happen? Uh, and, and, well, it's very interesting working with people who are on the edge all the time and to be around suffering a lot. Uh, I have to really have balance in my life. And when someone dies before we think they're going to die, and I'm always hopeful that they can last as long as it's meaningful, when someone dies, uh, I, I accept it. I realize that this was that person's time. I, in the early years, I felt a sense of failure, but I've been doing it for so long, I realize, I truly realize we all are going to die. And so it makes me sad a bit. I'll miss that person because we get very intimate in our discussions. And um, it, I'm sad for the family, but I can maintain a sense of balance and, and work with the family afterwards. Um, and I, I honor that person's presence in my life. I'm blessed by the person who shared that depth of experience with me. Uh, what about, uh, you mentioned afterlife. I'm trying to get all the topics in here because does someone have to believe, or say people who are not religious and they don't believe in an afterlife, you know, here I am now today and whatever happens now is what's going to happen to me and when I die, I die. Um, how, do, they, do you see or do they have, do you take a different approach with that person than the person who believes that they're going to be somewhere else or that there is an afterlife? I go along with the person's belief system. And the person who believes in this is it uh, can be just as happy. In the book, I talk about a man who uh, felt that way, and I was with him uh, just before he died. He had his family. We were out at the beach here in Malibu, and he was sitting in a wheelchair. He was so happy. And I said, John, why are you so happy? Uh, and he said, why wouldn't I be? It's a beautiful day. The sun is touching my skin I'm looking my friends in the eyes, and I'm in love with life, no matter how long it is. And I think that some who believe not in the afterlife have an easier time of being present, and that's, that's really useful. Now, what about the families? I mean, you're treating, obviously, the individuals. Are you treating them with families? Do you treat couples or, um, well, let's say it's a child, uh, parents, siblings, um, because, I mean, you're obviously very intimately involved with the person who's going through the dying process. What about the rest of the family? If they want to be included and if the client wants them to be included, then I'll do sessions separately with them and with the client. Uh, it depends on the situation. Right, so that's yeah, that's just individual. Does it? It's up. So you'll do both. You do the the, the yes, family, uh-huh. yeah, family therapy or family intervention mm-hmm. as well as with the individual. Um, what about talk to? I mean, you actually that was a great example of, of this man on the beach uh, appreciating minute to minute, actually, right? Because yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, any other examples? Because I think you know, like inspirational people that you've worked with. Uh, okay. Any others? Yeah. 
One of the biggest problems is relationship, as you well know. Um, and I had a, a client I talked about in the book. Her name is Jane in the book. And she <clears throat> had three children. She was the one with four years of cancer. And she, even though she was a psychiatrist herself, personally she was not well balanced uh, all of the time. And she really drew on her children and used the illness to try and get them to come and visit and take care of her, etc. She became very childlike. She would so much make those children feel guilty by saying things like, um, well, you better come and visit me because I'm not going to be here long. And the children began to resent it, and of course they didn't want to visit for very long. They'd come and they'd do their duty and leave very quickly. These were adult children, of course. So that was one thing that we worked on because the more that she grabbed at them and made them feel guilty and uh, also kind of wielded the money that she was leaving them above their heads and saying, well, if you want you know, money, you better come visit me. It was really uh, not such a good situation. There was resentment all around. So we worked with her. Uh, I worked with her, and I also worked with the kids. And little by little, little by little, she began to appreciate that they had their own lives also, that they couldn't be there every minute, and that they did indeed love her. So towards the end, just before she died, everyone was there, I was there, and they all were expressing uh, how much they cared and loved uh, each other. And it was a very beautiful setting, and her whole attitude changed. She became appreciative, not just of the children, but of life itself, and and began to see that uh, some parts of her life were really rich. Now, that's an inspiring story. What about, uh, do you have other stories or a, another story where it didn't work out, where you get a client or you get a patient who maybe has a similar kind of attitude or doesn't, isn't, uh, uh, you know, doesn't function well with their family and you simply just can't do anything? It just seems that this, they don't, either don't want to work on it or, you know, something. What do you do in that case? You stand by and you uh, hold center for them. That's the best way I can describe it. You're present. I am present, as I'm sure you are when you do your work. Um, You you work with what is, and I can't force the person to change. That's not my job. Uh, I'm present. I remind them that they have tools to go inward, to relax, to uh, begin to accept, and I do what all therapists do. You help them to uh, be at peace with themselves as much as possible. So uh, I guess it runs the gamut just as in any therapy situation. Yes. Those uh-huh. that, yeah. Yeah. So, um, all right. I, so also I, have, I also yeah, have a couple of clients who have committed suicide with their pills, so that didn't work out, so to speak. And I'm not saying suicide is wrong or a good choice if someone's suffering. It's just something that person did, but it, uh, I don't have any personal goals other than to work with the person, and the outcome is none of my business. So when you talk about suicide, are these clients who have mentioned it to you or contemplated? Do you talk about it? Is, you know, especially people who are in, in pain now. You know, pain mm-hmm. management and, and terminal illness is, a, is obviously a big field, but it doesn't mm-hmm. always work for everybody. Some people are in chronic, constant pain. How do you yeah. handle that? Yeah. 
Well, first I make sure that they're uh, communicating to their doctor how much they're in pain. And, and physicians uh, traditionally in the States have under-medicated towards end of life. So they're, they're beginning to uh, medicate more, which takes away the pain. But <clears throat> I, you know, that's, the, I have to comment on that because it's interesting because in the beginning of life, or they're medicating everybody for everything when you yes. really don't need the medication, or maybe it would be better to find alternative ways of mitigating the pain. But then, and then you're saying at the end of life when you really need it, they don't want to give it. Why do you, well, that's a whole other topic, I guess. But go on. Well, I'll just briefly say that uh, the family usually wants the person conscious. And if they get into a sleepy state most of the time because of the medication, then there's no relationship the family feels. So they don't like that. The family is a big issue in care also. Yeah, well, yeah. It, you mean the needs of the family versus yes, the needs, the needs of, the of the family. They may Thank not be you. the same. Right, exactly. And oftentimes the family wants the person to hang on and keep fighting, and the person is ready to go. I had one client, and, and uh, she was 93. She'd been through chemo. She'd been through everything. And she was at peace. We'd done some beautiful work. We did a life review. She was very satisfied with that. And the family said, you've got to have the chemo. This one isn't working anymore. They've got a new kind because they'd pushed the doctor for it. And the, my client said, can't I just look out the window and wonder what the afterlife is? Why do I have to go through this again? I said, you do not. You do not have to please your family. You are in charge of your own death. I think that's so important, and I think that happens, unfortunately, much more... Yeah, more frequently than we think, and and you're absolutely right. The family wants to keep the person alive for their own needs, and here you are. You're talking about a 91-year-old woman. Uh Yeah, Um, actually just causing more suffering and pain, and and, um, so you have a big job. (laughs) 35 years of doing this. Yeah, we only have a couple minutes left, so where do we want to leave the audience? I mean, are you going to continue to do this for the next 35 years? This is your work? (laughs) No, because my time of ending will come too soon. Yeah. <laughs> not very soon, but I'm 73, so I recognize. Yeah. And I'm, you know, this book is not just for those who are at end of life. It's about looking at your life and transforming or changing what's out of balance. And there are a lot of tools in here of uh, relaxation, imagery, uh, self-hypnosis, all of the things that I've used, um, how, to, how to deal with... Uh, families, lot. So I encourage anybody who wants to look at some of those ways of changing oneself to take a look at the book. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's well said. It isn't just if you're preparing for your death, but I think being conscious, being aware of who you are and where you fit into your universe and the choices that you make. Yeah, and all of that is important and is in your book. Through the Dark Forest, Transforming Your Life in the Face of Death, Carolyn Conger, website that we can go to or websites for more information about you and the book? CarolynConger.com. Oh, that's easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, and we can follow you, I guess, also nationally and internationally because you are not teaching, you do these, you conduct these seminars. Where's your next seminar? The next one is actually south of Los Angeles in a beautiful retreat. Great. Sounds Sounds beautiful. Anyway, Carolyn, thanks so much for being on the show today. 
Thank you, Catherine. I really appreciate it. Yep. It's been great talking to you. We are going to say goodbye. I'm your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.